following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. In this passage, we find Jesus appearing before the Sanhedrin, which is the official governing body of the Jews. Uh, And they, of course, have committed and determined that they want to kill him. Uh, But to do it, they need uh, to convict him of a crime worthy of capital punishment, worthy of death. Uh, And even though they are driven by hatred and scorn for Jesus, yet they represent um, legal authority in Israel. So they are trying to come up with a plan to legally charge Jesus with a crime that would be worthy of the death sentence. Uh, and, and, and once they have that charge, their plan is to take Jesus before the Roman uh, uh, government because the Jews don't actually have authority to execute Jesus. Only the, only the Romans can do that. Um, in Luke's account, Luke has very much streamlined and condensed the trials. And if you compare it with the other Gospels, it's clear that Luke leaves out a lot of detail. Not because that detail is not important, but it's not essential to what Luke wants to portray. Uh, he streamlines it, and he really focuses on, <clears throat> on the one thing that matters, the, the main point for which they feel they can uh, convict Jesus of something worthy of death. Um, <clears throat> so... Um, so this trial that we're looking at today is, is Jesus' official trial. Of course, they'll take him, and next week we'll lurk, look as, as Jesus is brought before the Romans and how the Romans deal with Jesus. But the focus this morning is the Jewish side of it, the Jewish ruling council, as they judge Jesus and charge him. Uh, and what's amazing in the midst of this, well, I want to highlight today is a couple of things. One, how um, Jesus is in control of everything. He is not at their mercy. He is absolutely in control of what unfolds even in his trial. And he is directing it as he goes. Um, And as he does that, in the midst of all this, he he is also showing and revealing who he is, even in his trial. So let's unpack this a bit. Uh, Starts off the night of his arrest, and uh, it's important to kind of get the... um, the chronology here, the timeline as, as Luke unpacks it. And uh, if, you remember, if you were here last Sunday, we talked about Peter's denial. And uh, Luke very carefully arranges Peter's denial up against what happens next. And uh, if you compare it to other Gospels, as I said, there's stuff in between. But Peter uh, does this, I think, for, for very good reasons. We'll see in a moment. Uh, so... Immediately following uh, kind of the, the order of events, Jesus is arrested. Uh, he appears in a couple different homes of the high priest. Luke does not mention all of that. Uh, Peter follows to at least one of these homes and maybe both. Uh, and at these homes at night, uh, they interrogate Jesus. And they're trying to put together their case so in the morning when they can hold the official council, the official trial, if you will, they'll have a case to bring so they're working that out. They're interrogating Jesus, and, and Peter is observing that. And it's during that time that, of course, Peter denies Christ. Um, and, and at the moment of his third denial, 
Jesus turns and looks at Jesus, and everything has happened as exactly as Jesus had said it would. And Jesus had, in great detail, explained that this is what Peter would do. He would deny him three times before the rooster crowed even once. Um, after these initial inter- interrogations are over and Peter has, has left, um, presumably the, the priests have all gone to bed, uh, but those holding Jesus, the soldiers, the temple guards who are holding Jesus, begin to mock and belittle him and abuse him. Uh, it's late at night and they're looking for some uh, entertainment. And so uh, the passage tells us that they brought him and they began to not sleep because they had to stay awake and they weren't going to let Jesus sleep. They're going to mock him and have fun with him. And so it says in verse 63, they, they were holding Jesus and they began mocking him as they beat him uh, by saying, by, by blindfolding him. And they kept asking, prophesy, who is it that struck you? Um, Jesus has a reputation as a prophet. Uh, he has a reputation and much of what he's being tried for is his claim to be a prophet and more. And so their scorn is based on that. And of course, they don't believe he's a real prophet. Uh, they don't believe he can do what they uh, are asking him to do. And so they, they throw a, a bag over Jesus' head and they begin punching him and hitting him with sticks and beating him and asking, Ha, tell us who hit you that time. Right? Tell us who beat you that time. Um, and, and it's with, with, with great derision and scorn that they mock Jesus and slander who he is and all that he stood for. Um, and, and at the heart of this is, you know, is Jesus a prophet? And that's really what they're making fun of him. And they're convinced he, he could not be. Um, but it's interesting that in doing this, they are actually fulfilling Jesus' prophecy, right? Um, and, and when they use the word prophecy here, it's used in the sense of someone who possesses a knowledge of things that's possible to know only by divine revelation, right? So they're covering up his head so Jesus can't see, and they're punching him, uh, assuming that you know they can't, he couldn't know that who 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 did it unless it was divinely revealed to him. That's how they're using this this word of prophecy. Um, but as I said, Luke puts this back to back with the account of Peter's denial where Jesus has exactly done that, right? Jesus has proclaimed in, in detail exactly what Peter would do, even though Peter denied it was even possible. Peter was convinced he couldn't do this. And Jesus says, no, you will. Jesus had prophesied exactly what would happen, and it came about exactly as Jesus had said. But even more significantly than that, the, the very mocking and beating that he's now receiving is something he's already predicted and prophesied on multiple accounts in the Gospels. Uh, most significantly in Luke chapter 18, it says this, And taking the twelve aside, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. So it's a bit ironic that they're joking with him and making fun of him and saying, Prophesy! And Jesus 
by the very acts of what's going on, is uh, silently saying, I don't have to. You are proof that I'm a prophet. Because exactly what I said is going to happen is exactly what you're doing. So Jesus demonstrates that he is a prophet. And um, if if the test is the ability to foresee future events, Jesus passes the test and he demonstrates clearly that uh, not only are they going to beat him and mock him, that he will go to the cross and he will rise again on the third day, exactly as the prophets had said. Um, so so there's, there's, there's a bit of ironic humor in this scene uh, because if everything Jesus said is true, if he really is a prophet, did he know who was beating him? Well, there's a very good chance he did. And if not at that moment, certainly when Jesus sits on the throne in judgment at God's right hand and these guys come and stand before him, Jesus will say, so about the question, did I know who was beating me? As it happens, I did. I do. I know it was you, right? Jesus knows. But the incredible thing in all of this is that he just is silent, right? He... He silently endures the mockery and the abuse and the scorn. Um, And and that's because Jesus knows he's on the road to the cross. And it is a road of suffering and abuse and of taking on in every way possible the full effects of a damaged, broken, sinful world. All of its consequences, all of its results, including this kind of Mock, mocking abuse and scorn. Uh, Jesus endures it because that is what was, is required to, to redeem sinful fallen humanity. Um, and Jesus knows that not only because he prophesied it, but because the prophets of old foretold of it. It is God's plan and God's purpose. And Jesus is simply submitting and yielding to God's plan. Well, the scene quite sh- uh, quickly uh, shifts from, uh, from the, the mocking scene in the middle of the night to the next morning. <clears throat> it says, when, when day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both the chief priests and the scribes, and they led Jesus away to their council. And uh, again, the point of this trial is to determine guilt. They need to come up with a charge, find some way to legally execute him or to bring him to the Romans so they can, will execute him. And, and so again, Luke goes right to the point. He skips all the, all the fringe detail. He goes right to the big question. The big question is this. Uh, the, the scribes and Pharisees, the council ask him, Jesus, if you are the Christ, tell us. Right? But Jesus said to them, if I tell you, you won't believe. And if I ask you, you won't answer. Uh, this is the main question. Right? And this is really what the Jews are hoping for. They hope that Jesus will confess to being the Christ. Now, what, what is the Christ? Well, it's the Greek word for the Jewish term that means Messiah. Right? The anointed one. The one sent. The one predicted and prophesied about. That would come as a king over Israel. Now, in this time, there was a lot of debate over exactly what the Messiah was, what it meant. Um, 
But their hope is that Jesus will admit to being, to claiming Messiahship. And by doing so, he would be claiming to be a king over Israel, who's trying to set up Israel as a kingdom, uh, which would uh, bring the charge of treason or insurrection against Rome. So that's what they're really hoping for. So they ask him straight out, are you the Christ? And remarkably, Jesus says, no, I'm not. Well, he doesn't say it in so many words, but he doesn't, he doesn't claim that charge. And he, he diverts it by saying, look, if I tell you, you're not going to believe me. And if I ask you any questions about this, you're, you're not going to answer. In other words, Jesus, we talked about this before. And if you look back through the Gospels, they have talked about this repeatedly. And uh, this is not the first time they've asked this question. And Jesus has repeatedly answered by saying, uh, this is the proof, this is the evidence, this is the Old Testament scripture in support of my Messiahship. But this time Jesus doesn't answer. He says, I'm not going to get into the debate with you. I'm not going to argue this point because um, you won't believe me. Now why is it, and Jesus knows he's going to the cross Jesus knows it's God's will. Jesus knows he needs to be condemned of something. He knows that they must find a way to uh, convict him of a crime worthy of death. Why doesn't Jesus stop right there and say, you said it. There you go. You got it. You got me on the charge of being the Messiah. Jesus clearly avoids that charge. Well, why? Why? Is it because he wasn't? Is it because Jesus didn't claim to be the Messiah? Why is it Jesus wasn't comfortable with this charge? Uh, and I love, again, this is how Jesus is demonstrating he's in control here. Right? Jesus is going to pick the charge that he's convicted of. And he doesn't like that one. He says, no, sorry, that's not going to do. Okay? I'm not going to be crucified by the charge of being the Messiah. So what's this all about? Why is Jesus, what does it matter to Jesus? He is the Messiah, and throughout the Gospels, he's been pointing and indicating and showing and demonstrating that he's the Messiah. But throughout the, throughout the Gospels, he's also been very reluctant to use that title. Right? He hasn't denied it, and he's, he's certainly demonstrated that he fills that role. But he has avoided the title. Why? And even here, he's avoiding the title. Well, the problem is that the Jews had a very inadequate understanding of what the Messiah was. Their concept of a Messiah was an earthly king ruling an earthly kingdom. And that's not what Jesus was about. He was not a Messiah in the sense that they thought of it. And he was not building a kingdom in the sense that they imagined. So he says, look, you're not going to put me up on charges of insurrection to Rome. Okay? That's not what I'm about. And that's not what I will accept as a guilty verdict. Um, so, so Jesus gives them some, some help. He says, look, guys, you're obviously struggling with this. Um, you're not bright enough to figure this out. Let, let me help you out a little bit. And Jesus hands them a golden nugget, right? He says, I'm not, I'm not going to argue about being the Messiah, but here's this. Take this one. From now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. How about that, right? How about that? Well, what does Jesus mean by this? Uh, let's unpack this a bit. Um, Jesus is saying, You're not, I'm not the Messiah in the way you think I am, an earthly kingdom, an earthly, earthly kingdom. I am a Messiah that is infinitely greater than that. I am a 
Messiah who's about to sit on the right hand of God in the place of supreme rule and authority over the universe. I am a king, but I am an eternal king of a heavenly kingdom of the ages where I will sit in the place of power and authority and rule and dominion at the very God Almighty's right hand. Okay, now this ups the stakes a lot. Okay, this ups the if, if Messiah was, you know, uh, kind of a stretch for putting him to death, for the Jews, this is everything they could dream of. Right? This was a certain conviction of something worthy of death. And so they confirm it just to make sure they're hearing Jesus correctly. So they said, are, are you saying then that you are the Son of God? And Jesus said, there you go. There you go. Try that one. That one will work. I'll take that one. Although he answers the question in a way that doesn't actually, uh, um, what's the word, uh, confess his guilt. But he says, there you go. Right? He says, you said it. You said, I didn't say it. You said it. You proclaimed it. He is the Son of God. Uh, so with that, they have all they need. They say, what more do we need? We've heard it from his own lips. He is guilty by his own testimony of this great crime of being the Son of God. Now, uh, get in the story there. We can move on. But, but I want to take just a moment to unpack that a bit because what exactly did that mean? Right? How is it being the Son of God was worthy of capital punishment? How did the Jews understand it? And more importantly, how did Jesus understand that title and that position? What exactly is it Jesus is claiming here? Um, and, and how is it worthy, uh, in the Jews' mind, of, of the death penalty? Well, uh, we've got to be clear about what Jesus is really claiming here. He's going to the cross. He knows that they will succeed in killing him. Uh, and he's saying that, look, I'm going to the cross. I will die, but I will rise again. And when I rise again, I'm going to ascend to heaven. And I am going to sit uh, at God's right hand in this place of supreme authority with total dominion as God's co-ruler over the universe. Uh, it is David's throne, but it's not David's earthly throne. It's everything that David's throne pointed to in the eternal realm of a heavenly kingdom. And Jesus was claiming to be that heavenly king. So Jesus is, in essence, claiming a measure of equality with God. Now, of course, the Jews had no idea and had no concept of a, tr a tr Trinitarian God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And Jesus doesn't try to unpack that one for them. That would have been a lot. In fact, it took the church about 400 years to actually unpack that. Uh, so Jesus doesn't spring that on them. But he wants them to understand clearly what it means for him to be the Messiah. Um, and, and this was... The, the, I mean, this was all the Jews needed. This unraveled them. Okay, this got them fired up in a big way. But, but why? Well, the first reason is that you've got to understand a little bit about the Jews' idea, especially in Jesus' day, about the holiness and transcendence of God. This morning we sang some songs that speak of God's holiness. We, we use that, that phrase a lot. But what does it really mean for God to be holy? Well, it can mean pure, spotless, without sin, which is true. But the better or the more true root meaning of it is someone who is totally other, who's transcendent, who's 
so uniquely different from us that he really shares very little in common with us. And the Jews had perfected this doctrine at this time. They believed God was so holy, so other, so different, that, that there was this huge gap separating humanity from God. And not that they didn't believe that they as, as Jews, as, as, as children of the promise, wouldn't go to heaven, but their picture of heaven was such that God was, even in heaven, was unapproachable. That there was heaven, but then beyond heaven was God's throne that was so far out there that, that you just didn't walk up to God's throne, right? You would be in heaven and you would enjoy the benefits of his kingdom, but you did not approach God. He was unapproachable. Unapproachable in glory and majesty and might and power and holiness. And, and they took this to such an extreme that, that Jewish people in this time would not, would not use the name of God, the name Yahweh, right? They held it in such awe and reverence and, and otherness, holiness, that it was, it was punishable by death if you uttered the name of God. That they would say other things that would uh, kind of point to God, but they could not use his name. You could not even write his name. So, of course, in the Hebrew Bible, if you've taken Hebrew or know about this, you know that they would use an unreadable set of letters, characters, to represent the name of God because they wouldn't even write his name because he was so unapproachable, so holy. Right? There's nothing common about him. Right, so Jesus says, hey, guys, I am going to sit next to God on his, on his throne of power. Right? In other words, God and I, I'm going to approach God. Not only am I going to approach God and bow before his throne, but I'm going to sit next to him. Right? Okay, this is a claim to equality with God. Okay, whatever the Jews understood about how Jesus could be of God, which they, they wouldn't have grasped that, but Jesus is saying here in this title, in this claim, that he is in every way equal with God, on the same level and plane as eternal, holy God. Okay. And to the Jews, that was utter blasphemy. Okay, that's blasphemy. That is, without a question, worthy of death. Uh, beyond that, Jesus use, uses two titles. Uh, he calls himself the Son of Man, and the, and the Jews give him the title Son of God. There's some in those titles as well, and I'm not going to go over both of them, but let me just talk a little bit about the Son of Man. Uh, what does Jesus claim by the use of that title? It's his favorite title. Throughout the Gospels, he mostly referred to himself as Son of Man. What does that title mean? Well, oftentimes we, we picture it as a, as a picture of, God, of, of Jesus' humanness, that God incarnate came, took on human flesh, and Son of Man is a representation of Jesus as the man as the God in human flesh. And Son of God is a picture of God's of his divinity. But that's actually not the best understanding of what Jesus implied by this phrase, Son of Man. It really comes from Daniel chapter 7. And let me read part of Daniel chapter 7 to get the context for where this title comes from. Daniel 7, starting at verse 9, says this, As I looked, and Daniel speaking, he's having this vision of beasts and monsters and horns and crazy Crazy stuff coming in this great spiritual battle at the end time. He says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, 
and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment. This is an amazing scene of, of heaven. The throne room of God, this holy God who sits in judgment. His, his throne is a fire, a consuming fire of wrath and judgment on wickedness and on sin and on these evil monsters that are invading and beasts that are invading the world. And it's, it's a day of judgment. So the thrones that are set up are thrones of judgment where God will judge wickedness and evil and sin and, and the world. Then in verse 13, I saw in this night vision and behold, uh, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And that's where Jesus gets this title. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was present, and it was presented. Bef- he was presented before him. So the Son of Man was presented before the Ancient of Days, and to him, that is, to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. See. In that title, Jesus is claiming, I'm that guy. I'm the one to whom the Ancient of Days has presented an eternal kingdom, and I will rule the nations with power and authority, and I will bring everything under dominion, my dominion, as an eternal kingdom. And so, so, so Jesus says it to the, to the council. He says, yeah, I am the fulfillment of that prophecy. I will sit on the throne at the right hand of God, and everything will come under my rule and dominion and power. You may think you judge me, but I am the great judge. And someday I will judge all the world and all the universe. And you will sit under judgment in my courtroom. Right? So the point here is this. Jesus makes certain that the charge is correct. So if you're going to pin a death penalty on me, it's not going to be for being an earthly king, a small little Messiah with a, a small M that you picture. Make sure it's a Messiah with a capital M, <laughs> a big M, right? A, a Messiah that sits on not David's earthly throne, but it sits in power at the right hand of God. If you want to kill me for that, I'm in, right? If that's the charge, that I will die for and so Jesus shows he's in control. He picks the, he picks the charge. He, he orchestrates the case against him. Uh, he's in control. And in the midst of this, he's revealing, still revealing who he is. The God of the universe who stepped into this world um, as king of kings to die for us. So let me just apply this with a couple observations. Uh, this Jesus who's on trial, Luke paints this amazing picture. This Jesus who's on trial is really the Jesus who sits on the throne of heaven, ruling the universe. Uh, he died, he rose again, he ascended. And he's now, Jesus said, right now, from now on, 
I will be sitting on the throne of power. Today, Jesus is ruling on that throne. So what does that mean for us, this, this Jesus who's seated on the throne? What does it, what does it do for us? Um, well, the first thing that just is, is uh, um, amazing to me is this idea that we get to approach the unapproachable God. Uh, the Jews were, in a sense, were right in this, right? They, they did not overstate the holiness of God. God is an unapproachable, incomprehensible, holy being who is so far beyond us. And in, in many of our modern conceptions of worship and relationship with Jesus, uh, we, we have in many ways, um, what's the word, diminished his holiness. You know, God's become just kind of our buddy. And we use language about him that would cause any good Jew to pull their hair out and tear their clothes, right? Throw ashes up in the air. Ah, blasphemy, right? Because we've made Jesus so common, right? And the Jews were so careful to guard and protect the holiness of God, and we should do that also. He is a God who is so other, so different from us, so far removed. He is wholly other, holy God. But here's the great news. Because Jesus died on the cross, because he is the king of kings who came to earth and died in our place and now sits at the right hand of the throne of God, you and I can approach the unapproachable. Um, the writer of Hebrews puts it this way, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Uh, literally it is, let us approach the throne of grace. Let us approach this God. Amazing. That's what Jesus' death means. He is no less holy. Right? It did not bring God down one notch. But the amazing thing is that through Jesus, we can approach the very throne of the holy God. And we have access to something that the Jews thought was absolutely impossible. Right? But that's what Jesus did. Right? When we go to heaven, God's throne will not be yet another infinite distance from us. In fact, we don't even have to go to heaven to do this. The writer of Hebrews tells us right here, right now, today, through Christ, you have direct access to the very throne of God. Amazing. Amazing. Right? You've been made holy and clean and pure, so you can stand before God right now, today, right? in his presence. And call upon him and you will find mercy and grace and, and help in your time of need. Anybody have a time of need going on right now? <laughs> okay, if not today, it's going to happen. Right? You're going to have times when you need God and you can go to him direct, right? And you will find help. Second thing. Um, because Jesus is on the throne... It gives us the capacity to endure hardship. Jesus faced the cross and he endured the cross silently. You know, I, I, mean, I, I just can't. Maybe one of the temptations that Jesus wrestled with was this whole thing when they were mocking him and beating him and blindfolding him and saying, prophesy, tell us who, who hit you. It would be so tempting to answer that question, right? 
It's like, all right, Zechariah, I'll tell you who it is. Right? So tempting to show them who he really is. But he stays silent. He is silent. He endures the cross and all of its torture patiently, silently, calmly walking step by step to the cross and laying down his life. Uh, and he calls us to endure hardship the same way. And, he, but, and here's the thing is, he did it because he had confidence that his life was in the Father's hands. Uh, we, we have that same confidence, but also we have the confidence that Jesus himself is ruling on the throne. And so whatever comes into your life, whatever difficulty you face, whatever struggle, whatever trial, know that Jesus is ruling He is bringing everything under his dominion, control, and power. And that means that there's nothing that comes into your life that God is not in control of. Sometimes it doesn't feel that way. Sometimes life unravels. And to you it feels very out of control. Spinning out of control. And you feel like you are grasping uh, to hold things together. What do you hold on to? Well, hold on to this. Jesus is on the throne. He is in control of heaven and earth. He is ruling. He's in control. In my own life, this got put to the test seriously many, many, many years ago when one of my close friends was killed in a car accident. Um, drunk driver driving uh, way, way too fast, crossed the center line and hit my friend's car and his, his wife was in the car with him head on. Uh, he was killed instantly. Um, just sold his business to move into ministry, uh, move his family up to this camper we worked. Uh, and it was devastating. It was devastating, right? And uh, the one anchor I had, the one thing that made sense of it all was the single truth. God is in control. God is in control. God knew this. And somehow, God's over this. It's, it's, it's okay because God is in control. Last thing. When we think about this, you know, Jesus is the King of Kings. How is it possible that He could die for you and me? Right? It is really just mind boggling that the King of the universe would, would, would march out of heaven and would walk to the cross and lay down his life for you and I. And I just want to read again uh, from the the section in Daniel. Uh, It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Why? Why? so that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Uh, This is why we worship God. Because he's a God who is king of the universe, but would lay down his life for us. Uh, Amazing that that's his love for us. And, and he seeks that the nations would, would serve him. And the word serve there, uh, in, in the Hebrew language, the, the word serve and the word worship is quite overlapped. Right? 
It's not serving in the sense of just working for God. It's, it's the service of worship. It's a worship that engages our whole life in living for his glory and praise and gratitude and thanks for this king who died for us. Seriously, who would you die for? You know, I love you guys. I'm just not sure I would die for you, right? Uh, don't take it personally, but, but Jesus died for us, right? Such was his love, right? And that should be the heart of our worship. That should be what drives our, mo- our worship more and more every day as we reflect and come to understand and know uh, that our King gave his life for us out of his great love so that we could be in his presence as his friends and as his You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.